everybody, and welcome to episode 11 of Cookie Pocket, an attempt at a podcast. Today we're going to be talking about I Don't Feel at Home in This World Anymore, a 2017 revenge dramedy, let's, let's call it that, starring <laughs> Melanie Linsky as Ruth, who has her house broken into and her grandmother's silver stolen. Uh, wanting to get back at the criminals, she goes to her neighbor, Tony, played by Elijah Wood, and decides to hunt the people down who broke into her house and stole her grandmother's silverware. Uh, and it's quite a ride. Uh, so, Christian, Mitchell, what'd you think of the film? Well, um, I liked it. I liked it a lot. Um, it it was, at the same time, it's kind of like, uh, I guess I'll, I'll call it like a Last Jedi type of deal where I really, really loved parts of it, mm-hmm. and I was really, really, really bothered by other parts of it. So, like, kind of two extremes in the same product. But um, I gave it a three out of five. Uh, While I was watching it, it was probably, of the four picks that you've given us so far, the one that I enjoyed the most. And um, uh, aside from, like, being a little distracted by Elijah Wood not being Frodo, and obviously that's not his fault. Like, he's Mm -hmm. a working actor, and he's good. He's a good actor. He's good in his part. But, like, I just can't help but but see that. Like, and, and the same goes for, like, prominent superhero actors and and plenty of other examples but um yeah i thought our lead actress i i don't remember her name but i thought she was great um melanie Linsky, yeah okay yeah and uh the the like tarantino-esque um unraveling towards the end was was uh something and I, i was definitely like glued to the screen at that point so i guess that worked um yeah, I, we'll get into more particulars later, but uh, overall, I gave it a three out of five, and I enjoyed it. Okay, uh, Mitchell. Um, this movie is crack, which I'm really happy to say. <laughs> um, ba- basically, because you know, uh, there's some movies that are just like you, you clearly made to be stimulating, and this is exactly mm-hmm. that. And mm-hmm. it chooses two, three, maybe four genres to peel from, and uh, I think it does a really good job. Uh, blending those together um, and it's funny not like it's trying to be a comedy it's just the situations themselves are funny yeah and it's funny and also disgusting at the same time but in <laughs> a in a very amusing and uh, riveting way I guess yeah and that is its biggest strong suit I think um, and it holds up throughout the entire movie and the conclusion is definitely you know ups the ante on all, all accounts um, but I gave it a three out of five. I thought I, I thought I really enjoyed it and there wasn't really anything particularly like uh, groundbreaking. Um, but it was, you know, it was fun and <laughs> seeing Elijah Wood like this is definitely amusing. Um, but yeah, no, the casting's pretty good. I think, uh, Ruth and Tony really paid off, played off of each other really well. And, you know, it was just, it was a fun, entertaining, uh, I called it a train wreck, a pretty train wreck on, <laughs> on Twitter. Um, that's a compliment. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it was, it was pretty good. Yeah. Uh, I also gave this a three out of five. I think it's the first film that we've all agreed Whoa. on all around. Um, this is the directorial debut of Macon Blair, uh, who in this film actually has a cameo as the guy in the bar <laughs> who spoils the book that she's reading. Yeah. Um, and he's he's primarily known as as an actor. He was in movies like Blue Ruin and and uh, Green Room, which are kind of well known sort of indie revenge films. And I think you can tell this is a directorial debut 
Um, while it is kind of a, a story that takes on several different genres and um, a, a kind of complicated tone, story-wise, it doesn't feel all that complicated. Um, and the shot structure isn't that complicated. It feels like uh, maybe Blair was sort of taking it easy on, on the structure of the film. He didn't want to stretch himself too much on his debut. But I still think this is really entertaining. Uh, like Mitchell said, there are some really funny moments, but they don't come from the movie necessarily trying to be an out-and-out -out comedy. They come from the characters just sort of being funny in the situations that they're put in and the way that they work off of each other. Uh, and I think that really works. This isn't a film that I love necessarily, but I do really enjoy this film, and, I, and I'm interested to see what, what Megan Blair does next. Uh, now, Christian, you said there were some specific points in the movie that that really turned you off. Could you elaborate on that a little bit more? Sure. Um, I, I kind of have to jump all the way to the end for this one, but oh. um, the the big chase between Ruth and the... the, the, the dude. Uh, Marshall. Yeah, Marshall. Yeah. Um, and she's like hiding behind the tree trunk and talking to him. And he like kind of knows where she is, but doesn't really know where she is, even though it, it would probably be pretty obvious where she is. And then he figures it out. And then she has like, she throws like two rocks that fit in her palm at, at him. And somehow those are like strong enough to knock him backwards into the pond. Hmm, and then the snake okay. like bites his face. Like uh, it, they, uh, from the inciting incident at the house up until that point, I was like super into it and down with every twist and thought it was executed well. But when she like turns around and throws the rocks at him, I'm like, okay, that's just kind of stupid. Like huh. I, I didn't, I didn't really, I, I, they looked like small stones and and <laughs> this guy's like oh my gosh i just got like force pushed into this pond and i don't know and okay. then i was also frustrated because i felt like they were kind of even though marshall is kind of like a side character at first mm -hmm. after his two um accomplices are, are dead it really feels like they're kind of building an arc for this character and like everyone has has an ending but mm -hmm. he's his ending is the snake is still attached to his face and he's screaming madly and running through the forest and we don't really know what happens to him. Yeah. But, um, Sequel? Yeah. <laughs> why not? I, <laughs> no. I will admit it, it is a little <laughs> irritating not to get a resolution with Marshall. I think there might be some kind of a suggestion mm -hmm. that maybe he was captured because at the end the the wife of um, Oh, uh, yeah. Chris is looking through like police photographs and like mm -hmm. saying, Oh, this person was here. This person was here, but we never like see what happens to him. Mm -hmm. And I agree. That's kind of annoying. Um, uh, Mitchell, what, what did you think of, of that moment or those moments? I would say, I'm not sure. I, I kind of felt like, uh, all the scenes leading up to that were, um, sufficient for me, I guess, to be okay. satisfied with how the movie ended. Uh, I did feel, I did feel dissatisfied at that particular moment, but I just think, Things went so off the rails at that point, to keep with my train metaphor. Um, <laughs> <laughs> things went so off the rails by that point, I was kind of not really worried about how the story was going to conclude. And I don't think uh, they, uh, they were really worried about um, how it actually was going to end very much either. Um, like you said, Zach, it was, you know, he's trying to keep his simple story. So I don't think it was... Uh, I don't think it was super necessary to be like, we make sure we have all the knots tied and everything. Yeah. All right. Oh, well, that actually makes a pretty good transition into into my next point. What did you guys think of the villains in this film? Not just Marshall, but but Chrissy and and the woman that's with them. What did you kind of think of them as a trio? Did you find them threatening? Did you find them funny? What were your thoughts? 
I thought they were genuinely terrifying, especially oh. Chrissy. Um, like the the opening bit we get with him looking in the mirror. Like I interpreted that to mean that he's basically a psychopath. Um, that that like uh, and when when he's at the party and he's confronted by the dude outside and he's like he's really good at manipulating his facial expression mm-hmm. and like um and con- telling co- stories convincingly and um yeah so i was definitely frightened by the idea of this character just like um being able to uh influence the way that he interacts with anyone on such a in such an easy manner um there there are also funny moments for sure like the banner between them but um I mean, after Chrissy dies and after Ruth gets captured by the remaining two, I feel like any humor uh, kind of gets sucked out and it's like totally replaced by like a horror, horrific approach to me, at least. So, OK, mm-hmm. Mitchell, what did you think? Yeah, they kind of reminded me of the uh, the Manson family from um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah, it kind of gave me yeah. that vibe, especially when they're they're in the van and everything, and they're all like stupid, and they <laughs> they can't they can't figure each other out because they're all like psychologically messed up. So uh-huh. mm-hmm. I thought that was interesting. It was it was um you know I don't think there was too much focus necessarily on them, um, but I think that I think the whole the whole crime and figuring out the crime and going after them and vengeance is kind of the main focus. So I think they were developed enough to, for us to be, you know, frightened by them, but also get doses of comedy, um, towards the end. Hmm. Okay. I, I feel like I had like a totally different interpretation of them as villains to you guys. I personally didn't find them all that scary. I, I think at least to me, it felt like you're sort of meant to find them kind of pathetic. Um, because, even though Chrissy kind of comes off as scary in that original altercation, when he actually, like, tries to be scary, like, to Ruth and tries to approach her, he gets hit in the throat with a bad plastic mold of a shoe, and then he just stumbles <laughs> in front of a bus and dies. Like, that's yeah. not really, like, a big villain death. It's like a, yeah. oh, I didn't plan this well type thing. Um, and when, uh, and you mentioned Marshall kind of falling down the hill backwards in that scene, um, while I do agree those rocks are kind of small, I think the way he dies, or doesn't die, but the way he's defeated is kind of meant to contribute to that feel of him being sort of pathetic. Because the way mm-hmm. she riles him up into, like, finally charging up the hill to get her is she insults his tattoos, um, which I feel wouldn't be a thing that would necessarily get, like, a hardcore villain, um, pumped up and ready to kill, and then she just has to throw these two small stones at him, and he's thrown off balance and topples backwards down the hill. Uh, I, I think this kind of falls into sort of my idea of all the characters, but I think the villains in the movie are sort of deliberately meant to be not very good at what they're trying to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, when they break into the house, even though they got guns and, and they're willing to hurt people and they aren't good people at all, um, Chris points out, that they planned this really, really badly. Uh, like, like they tell him to go and get the stuff out of the safe and the, the money they're looking for isn't even there. And then they're just sort of stuck with, well, now what do we do? Uh, they, they, the gun that they get to like help take part in the stand, uh, the, uh, the holdup explodes in the woman's hand and blows her hand off. So I think while there are some threatening scenes, I think a lot of the scenes are kind of meant to subtract from that threat and sort mm-hmm. of reveal that while these are villains, they're also like real people that make mistakes and do dumb stuff yeah um but yeah i I think it's interesting how sort of the different aspects of them resonated with all of us differently 
Uh, but speaking of the characters in general, what did you guys think of uh, Ruth and Tony, and additionally Melanie Linsky and Elijah Wood, the actors who play them? What did you think of them and their back and forth? Well, I mean, I think they worked together great. They definitely had good chemistry. Um, I, my my opinion on on Ruth like changed a billion times while I was watching because at first I I was like totally sympathizing with her and. I thought like the opening sequences where she's just having a bad day mm-hmm. were, were well directed and you, you think it captures like the mon- the monotonous feeling without like actually boring the viewer and you, you feel sympathetic for her. But um, also at, at the end of the day, I, I kind of was annoyed with Ruth to some extent because hmm. of like the, the one exchange he has with the police officer like at the precinct where he's basically like compared to other people you have a, a pretty good life <laughs> and and i know that's like a really awful thing to say to someone who's like going through something but i, I there is definitely a little bit of that with ruth and i, I mean yeah that, that's not it's not really a fair judgment but i, I mean overall i liked her character and um elijah wood was great even though i i saw hobbit the entire time he was (laughs) he was funny um i liked his facial hair i liked his rat tail (laughs) (laughs) yeah i liked um i really liked how they played off of each other i think one of the main interesting things um that this film does well that a lot of films that try to do this same thing with outcast characters uh tend to do is that they kind of make them a little bit too important they kind of make them uh too significant as if they're so because they're out there they're more important than the average person mm-hmm. or they have like some type of coming of age moment or something like that and they over exaggerate it in this it's mm-hmm. literally just two outcasts that are going through these terrible situations in their best way possible and and they just happen to be funny and happen to have good lines um throughout <laughs> the whole film and I think Elijah Wood kind of plays the he, he doesn't he says he, he he's a lot less deadpan I guess, um, and and so, uh, as opposed to Melanie Linsky, mm-hmm. but um, Melanie Linsky kind of is more deadpan, and then Elijah Wood kind of says stuff that's more about timing, like saying things yeah. funny in you know weird moments, um, and this you know if you can pick apart their characters just because they're playing them in a very organic way. Mm-hmm. And it's not, you don't really feel like they're written in some, you know, unnatural world. This is a very, very natural feeling film. Like, these are definitely people that could exist. And if you throw them in these weird situations, then something weird will come out of it, such as regular show. <laughs> yeah, I, I would definitely agree that these these feel like real people. Uh, I think a shortcut maybe a lesser screenwriter or director would make with this film would be to make... Uh, Elijah Wood's character Tony like a legitimate like ninja badass Uh, but in reality like our villains he's just a a wee bit pathetic like there's a wee Mm -hmm. edge of like I mean this guy's kind of a wimp in in there like because even though he like really admires this sort of uh, samurai and ninja imagery and he likes to think of himself as really tough and a spy um, he really isn't like, the, the first time that they knock somebody else out, he holds his mace out, and the guy grabs it and pulls on it and basically knocks himself out. Uh, one of my favorite scenes in this film is um, Elijah Wood's character says, 
okay, well, we got the license plate. We can find him. I'm gonna, I'm gonna hack. And then all he does is just, like, Google search ways to look up a car based on the license plate, which feels so yeah. real to me. There's, there's all kinds of people who will say, like, oh, I hacked it. Oh, I know what I'm doing. And then they just look things up online or they guess somebody's <laughs> password, which isn't legitimate hacking at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I definitely agree with, with Mitchell that Melanie Linsky is sort of the... They're both quirky characters, but Melanie Linsky, if this were a comedic duo, is kind of the straight woman... And then Elijah Wood is kind of the, the funnier, not bouncing off the walls character, but he's a bit more outlandish. He's a bit more eccentric. He's where mm-hmm. a lot of the humor comes from. But I think I think they work really well together. And uh, I think Elijah Wood, at least to me, uh, really vanishes into this role. It's been a while since I watched uh, Lord of the Rings films and saw him in those, but I did enjoy them a lot. I used to watch them a lot when I was younger. And as somebody who has those stories and those characters firmly ingrained in his head... Frodo never came to me when watching this, but um, uh, I guess that's different for different viewers. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, yeah, Frodo I'm, didn't come up to me either. <laughs> yeah, I have to confess, I haven't, I don't, I didn't really know Elijah Wood was still like out there. <laughs> well, I knew he was like alive. Yeah, I didn't know. I didn't really know how much work he was getting. I, I basically have only ever seen him in Lord of the Rings, this, and he did a, a voice acting role in. in the the weakest animated Star Wars TV show, and that's mm. like all I know about his career. So I mean, it's not it's definitely like not fair of me to, to say something like that. But if I saw like Adam Driver and Daisy Ridley in another live action movie, I would be distracted, even if they were really good at acting. Like mm. it's just it's it's totally not the actor's fault. But a, as a viewer, I found it a little distracting. Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, not Adam Driver. Elijah Wood is uh, absolutely still around. He's just not in kind of these bigger productions necessarily. He's done a lot of indie stuff. Uh, so if you, listener, have also not heard from Mr. Elijah Wood in a while, look him up on IMDb. He's been doing some interesting stuff. <laughs> hmm. uh, now, another, a couple moments in this film, I would say, get very, not very religious, but involve some religious themes and moments. Uh, and the character of Tony is established to be quite religious himself and takes Ruth to church in a couple of scenes. What were your interpretations of those scenes and those potentially Christian themes? Do you think they're overtly kind of uh, praising or pressing Christianity? Or do you think maybe it's about something a little deeper than that? I don't think any of it was like really overt either way. I just, I just think it was, it was sort of used as a means of communicating how like different modes of spiritual belief can, um, like sincerely affect your life and your your manner of thinking and just the way you process events around you mm-hmm. and um I, I think it's really really important to the way that they resolve ruth's arc and one of my issues immediately after watching the movie was i didn't think they resolved ruth that much at all because after all this crazy stuff happens to her she goes back to her daily life of of like monotony and frustration with people around her and uh Pardon my French to the listeners, but it's important to hear this phrase. People are still assholes in her life after everything. And that's kind of like, to me, that's like the central theme of this movie. She just wants people to stop being assholes. Yeah. But but um, at the end of the day, they, they still are. And she's, for the most part, still herself. Maybe she's a little less timid, but mm-hmm. I don't think that's communicated strongly as a big change. And the only thing that that was a, a big change in her routine is we see her go back to the church again after um, Tony, I guess, is presumed dead. 
but that, that's a whole nother confusing thing that we might touch on later but um i i i was fine with the way they included religion because it was it was i don't think it was overt or overdone it was pretty subtle and um it didn't really like take a definite side uh morally one way or the other i just think it it was a nice exploration to how those concepts and those ideas can mean a lot to a character or a person. Okay. Maybe I should bring this up as a sub question. Cause we're kind of getting into this territory. How do you guys interpret the title to this film? How do you think the title applies to this movie? Uh, Mitchell, I, I offer you both the religion question and, and this question because I think okay. the answers are probably going to intertwine a bit, but all right, I can handle this. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, it comes from a hymn. I already looked this up, so yeah. I got you. Uh, <laughs> this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. Um, and it's supposed to be a Matthew 6 reference. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. So it's kind of it's kind of interesting having a sp- spirituality in the background as kind of like something that just simmers and, you know, it invites you if you uh, are interested in it. Um, and you don't really have to think about it if, if you don't want to. So I think that's the best possible way to introduce uh, religion in a movie not about religion mm-hmm. um, necessarily. But it's definitely about spirituality because um, feeling at home is kind of just like fitting and um, finding your place in the world. And, you know, and Ruth figures out at the end that you can't change uh, the world necessarily. You can't change the fact that people are assholes or that, you know that the world's acting like it hates you um but you you yourself can be positive and improve yourself as an individual and give love to others and you know do uh i don't know what the golden rule is it's like uh, do one do do i don't know what it is be honest or something <laughs> be, you know you know what i mean be righteous do unto others as you would have yes. others do unto you there. thank you literary expert okay <laughs> I can't, I can't, okay, you know what, I, I can't, I'm bad, okay. Um, yes, so, you know, she's living a life of solitude, and she doesn't know, she, she, you don't necessarily have to rely on other people, or rely on the world to give back to you, mm-hmm. but as long as you are a, you act as a morally righteous person, and you do good to others, and, you know, you will be, you will theoretically feel love back, um, you'll feel sincerity back, so... Um, you know, love thy neighbor and things like that. You know, you just, you live life more isolated, I guess. Isolated in the sense that you are more focused on your inner circles than you are with the the world as a whole or blaming everyone else for your problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when I first saw this film, which was a couple months ago, I, I didn't think about the title at all. It just, I, I they used that song by Woody Guthrie, which is a, uh, a, a version of that hymn towards the end, and I thought, oh, the title, look at that. But giving it some thought, I think you brought up kind of that sense of um, being at home as being central to the plot, Mitchell. I don't necessarily think when they're referring to I don't feel at home in this world anymore, they're talking about the idea of belonging. I think the concept of not feeling home here more applies to not not just just not enjoying your your time in this world anymore not feeling comfortable in this world anymore i i think uh to that to a certain extent i think it can almost be applied to sort of the process of growing up uh when you're younger you're kind of comfortable and you assume that the world is nice and you're kind of free from that knowledge that as uh ruth says in the film people are assholes 
Um, and then as you get older, you kind of start to recognize that. And I feel like at the beginning of that movie, that idea that life and the world are just kind of generally crummy uh, is is in, is kind of ram-tome by the fact that on TV, we've got footage of like riots and rallies taking place. Um, there are people in the 15 uh, items or less line at the grocery store who have way more than 15 items and she got to stand behind them. Uh, there's that whole thing in the parking lot of the grocery store where there's a car backing out and she's trying to walk past mm. and they're just in a stalemate for a long time because nobody wants to go first. Uh, and then additionally, uh, the police aren't really doing much about the case of her house being broken into and dogs keep pooping on her lawn. So there's all these little things that make life uncomfortable and make you feel not at home in life anymore. Mm -hmm. And I think the point of kind of those religious sequences is um, the world is always going to be kind of generally crappy and things are always generally going to kind of suck to some extent, but it's about finding things in life that make you feel at home and, and that's what's going to get you through. Mm -hmm. So I feel, Christian, you mentioned that you didn't really think Ruth had undergone any kind of arc. I feel like the arc at the end of this is the world still sucks. People are still kind of assholes. We keep using that quote. Uh, sorry, mom. Um, <laughs> but she's found religion and it's suggested, I think, at the end that she started a relationship with Elijah Wood's character. Uh, because Christian, you seem to be a little unsure on whether or not he was alive or dead. Yeah. Uh, there's a scene at the end where they're at a barbecue uh, with, with her sister and she turns around and he's like there surrounded by heavenly light. But then we pull out to see that he's actually just cooking burgers and there's a porch light behind him. So I think that's meant to be like one final joke. And the implication is that Ruth has found religion. She started some kind of a relationship with Tony or she's at least friends with Tony. And those are the things that get her through despite the fact mm -hmm. that the world isn't necessarily as homey as it might be. Uh, well, that but Christian, did you of... have any additional thoughts? Yeah. I, I do think the the religion thing kind of gives Ruth a little bit of development. I didn't mean to say that she had no arc whatsoever. Um, mm -hmm. I was totally confused by Tony showing up in the final scene. I, I had no idea. I thought it was like some like goofy, like force ghost type thing. And I totally did not understand it. And I still don't understand it after you've explained it to me because um, she mostly because of the routine we see beforehand. Mm -hmm. She does everything alone. She goes to church alone, yeah. which to me is like the most notable thing that she would probably not do without him if they were if she, if he were the one that had introduced her to doing that and yeah. brought that routine into her life. It strikes me as odd that she would do it on her own if they were dating or still friends. And um, I, I guess like the one thing that that really made me question and or realize that um, Tony was still alive is when he's talking to the other guy yes that's, like married to a friend about how funny. to cook burgers correctly yeah, but, uh, yeah it, it was funny but also but it was also frustrating like what does this mean and i don't think and zach you're you're a very smart guy i would i would wager that you are smarter than me and i do not think that the average viewer uh can understand what they were going for in that last scene i found it a little frustrating i wasn't but... trying to understand it I was just I was just taking it for what it was, and that's it. I'm not really going to think about it too much. I don't really care if he's alive or not, <laughs> to be honest. I'm just glad I got to see Elijah Wood again, and that's yeah. it, okay? Fair I mean, enough. I understand, I understand there's a story, and there's a structure, and there's actual character arcs, and there's mm -hmm. development, and underlying themes, and things like that. But I think the themes 
and how the two characters play off of each other throughout the whole film and what you take from like the title and the ob- obvious message from the title um that's all of that i think is what's important i think taking the mm-hmm. film and the actual plot itself and trying to f- figure out why things are like why oh why is tony alive or why doesn't really matter <laughs> that's what i that's what <laughs> i'm going to ask that's yeah. that at least that's my opinion okay um so i know that you don't necessarily care whether he's alive or dead but when you watched it did you think oh he's alive or did you think no he's dead so which which did your mind automatically jump to, Mitchell? I I will I, right when I saw him in the, in the fog, I definitely thought Forrest Ghost. That was literally yeah. That wow. was the first thing. That was an obvious reference. But then when he's on the crutch and he's cooking the burgers and stuff, I'm like, oh okay, I guess he survived somehow. I'm not really gonna think about how he survived because with all those stab wounds and being bleeding out for that long, I don't yeah. think he would have survived. But I'm not gonna think about it too much. That was my thought process. Okay, uh, I mean I. Even when I first saw the film, I, I always interpreted that as uh, she... I know there's... I actually don't remember a shot in the, that ending montage where she goes to church alone. I know there's one way earlier in the film when they kind of have their falling out where she goes to church alone. Um, but if there is a shot in the final montage, I would presume that's just to establish that... Well, it's to kind of bait you into thinking, oh, maybe he's dead. But in reality, he would just be, like, in hospital because he just got out of a very bad stabbing incident. (laughs) Uh, And then when I first watched it and she turned around and there's that extremely tight shot of his face and he's, and he's backlit and he smiles. And I thought, Oh, that's sweet. He's smiling at her from heaven and they pull (laughs) out and he's having an argument about how to cook burgers correctly with her brother-in-law. I mean, I immediately jumped to, Oh, great. He's alive. Um, so I, I thought that was meant to be kind of the final bait and switch for the joke. So I'm interested that that didn't automatically come across to you guys, but I could be mixing up the two montages. Like you said, that, that moment with her alone in church could very well be a different part of the movie. But, uh, even outside of that, there's like at the end of this big chase with Marshall, she like goes back to Tony and he's not responding and he looks limp and he looks dead. Mm -hmm. And it is very safe to assume he would be dead after being stabbed several times. And I don't know. I, I guess it's like a cute twist. But yeah. personally, I found it annoying and really? not critically justifiable. <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I personally am fine with it. I feel like that's all lead up to just that final uh, cute twist, as you put it. I, I feel like I, I, I personally justify it as being part of Ruth's arc. But I, it's interesting you find you, you were so irritated by it. I, I haven't met anybody yeah. who uh, disliked the ending that much. But I would also say I don't think Ruth's arc should be dependent on Tony or Tony surviving. Like Tony was definitely a good friend to her and was part of her growth, but I I like the idea of her establishing a new status quo for herself that's independent of Tony and that shows her as more self-sufficient than she was at the beginning of the movie. Well, I wouldn't necessarily we're we're turning this into a bit of a tennis match, but I wouldn't necessarily <laughs> say that um her resolution is like dependent on Tony, but I think Tony is part of it Uh, i mean i think that ending conversation that um she and her sister have implies that things still suck but she's a little bit more comfortable uh even without tony there Mm -hmm. Uh, but i think that kind of her making friends and being comfortable around people and not just going over to her sisters to cry when reading at her niece is kind of a, a, a big part of it um I feel like there needed to be somebody that she connected to by the end, uh, because I think kind of her, 
isolation is sort of a, a big part of the first part of it, and you kind of need that contrast by the end. That's fair. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think uh, Tony brought all of the tools for her to figure herself out mm-hmm. and, you know, gain a little bit of self-esteem. But, um, yeah, no, I, I think she, I would agree with Zach. I would say I think uh, that he's definitely part of it. Mm-hmm. I don't think that he's entirely because, or she's the way that she is because of him. But, um, I don't know. I, I felt like she was relatively independent. I kind of felt like most of, in most of the film, a lot of what was being accomplished was because of, was because of Ruth. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, if anything, I think Tony kind of just served as a sidekick, pretty much. But also, a sidekick and also kind of a subtle spiritual advisor in his own right. Not, like, a forced one, where he's like, I am going to tell you, I'm going to tell you to read <laughs> the New Testament now. But, like, <laughs> um... Or uh, here's this lightsaber. Uh, yeah. <laughs> figure this out. Um, but no, I think he's just. She takes from. She takes from everything what she needs, and it's like I said, it's a very natural thing. You know, it's not. There's very little archetypal kind of air to this. I don't think. Yeah, I would say the vibe that Ruth and Tony's relationship gives off is kind of like. If, if George Bailey and Clarence teamed up to go and solve a crime, um, because you've got the one character that's kind of like down in the dumps and is like, oh, life is just awful. And then you've got our other character who's a bit more chipper and eager um, and is kind of having fun with it. Uh, there, there are great scenes where Ruth is trying to take things really seriously. And then Tony's kind of eager to just be doing this at all and like having an adventure when they go to Chrissy's house and they open the door and Ruth flashes the badge and she starts talking to uh, the woman pretending she's a cop. And then mm-hmm. Tony just interrupts and goes, police. <laughs> like, yeah. it's just like, a, it's a fantasy for him. He wants to be like action man, policeman. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mentioned before our conversation that uh, to me, his character kind of feels like a weird amalgamation of all three of us and Dwight Schrute. <laughs> uh, because he has that kind of, he, does have that sort of Dwight Schrute-ish misplaced confidence in himself mm-hmm. um, that sort is sort of charming in its own way, yeah. <laughs> even though he is kind of inept to a certain extent. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, that pretty much brings us to the end of my discussion notes. But before we go into the rundown, do we have any final thoughts on the movie? Uh, I guess. Three <laughs> out of five. Yeah, um, I do. Woo! Okay. Yeah, do it, Mitchell. Do the All thing. Right. <laughs> Three out of five, and I do have to mention something. Um, oh. I don't. I, I have a bias against Netflix movies. <laughs> I'll say that oh. Um, oh. mainly, be- and it's uh, had no influence on my rating or my critical analysis at all mm-hmm. um, this time mm-hmm. around. Um, but I've seen. I am not okay with this, which is kind of like a, a short series, and then end oh, yeah. of the effing world. Mm-hmm. And both of those have a very, very similar nostalgic aesthetic and mm-hmm. a very similar kind of callback soundtrack. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a very overused aesthetic. And in this, it comes off a lot more natural. I appreciate the way that they did it here, kind of the 90s vibe and the 79 Pontiac Firebird I really liked. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> but I don't know. I just don't like that. I don't like that overuse of that aesthetic. I feel like it's not very original and I think it's very, you know, repeated kind of, it's kind of like applying contemporary ideas to an older, an older generation where all they wanted to take from the generation was the aesthetic and that's it. 
Like they just wanted to make diners look the way that they do and have certain cars and certain songs play and cassette tapes like they have in uh, 13 Reasons Why that I watched the first two seasons of, unfortunately. Um, (laughs) But yeah, I think that's an overused aesthetic. But I will say in this is not played nearly as much and I really appreciated that and I completely forgot about it um, halfway into the movie. Um, but yeah, no, I really liked it and I, the, the acting was very good and it was a very interesting off the rails experience that, um, especially for today's times, I think anybody, really anybody who's, first of all, anybody who likes Netflix movies (laughs) for their aesthetic, (laughs) this would be a good one. Um, it's a, it's a good movie. Like it's, I don't know. It's something that everybody can learn from. So in that case, I would say it's definitely three out of five. And you know, if you're fine, if you liked kill bill, very kill boat quentin tarantino like christian had said um but yeah i really liked it and i recommend it for most people yeah um i i would say um it does have kind of those tarantino vibes although it's a lot less stylized uh the director actually macon blair has said that he thought of it as a follow-up to joel schumacher's movie falling down uh, which not many people have seen nowadays. Most people just know Schumacher for the Batman movies he made, but <laughs> Falling Down is a pretty good movie about like an everyday businessman who kind of loses it and goes on a rampage um, through through the city. And it, it does have kind of some thematic similarities to Tarantino and to this. Um, but yeah, I, I should mention, this isn't a movie that was produced by Netflix. Um, this movie was made independently in like 2016 and then mm-hmm. chosen to be distributed by Netflix, but it does kind of have especially in its advertising that Netflix prepared. It does have that aesthetic of some of its other shows uh, and programs. Uh, I would say, although there are darker elements in this, I personally enjoy this as a, a lighthearted kind of dramedy with some revenge elements. Uh, and I, I would advise, I would say this is a pretty good movie for like Saturday, Sunday afternoon viewing. Mm-hmm. Um, there are, like I said, and like Christian said, some some darker moments in there. But I think overall it's, pretty fun and i think that the acting really carries it through along with the the little moments of humor so three out of five for me yeah Um, i I just i'll just real quick say that like all three of us giving it a three out of five is i think in some ways better than if two of us rated it highly and one of us really hated it hmm. like i i think it's a real testament that it could juggle a lot of different thematic approaches well and um all of us giving it a, a good rating means that it's probably open to a, a more broad audience than I certainly expected going into it. So I'll yeah, give it that mm-hmm. strength. Okay. I guess we'll hand it over to you then, Christian, for the rundown. <laughs> 60 seconds. We, we say things about the movie we just talked about uh, to Zach, and Zach responds with... Uh, numbers out of five uh i'm going to set the timer for 60 seconds mitchell will start us off mitchell are you ready yes okay three two one go the elsewhere saga uh three out of five kevin the dog three out of five paying closer attention to home security uh two out of five having such beautiful little black eyes (laughs) three out of five Dog poop not allowed signs. Four out of five. Taped sneakers. Four out of five. Unreliable authorities again. Uh, Three out of five. Elijah Wood as Tony. Four out of five. Pirate firearms. Uh, Three out of five. Ninja sticks. Four out of five. Cappuccino foam. Uh, Three out of five. 
being tired of people being assholes. Four out of five. Remembering to enable find my MacBook. <laughs> Four out of five. Throwing rocks. Two out of five. Bringing one's mother into it. <laughs> Three out of five. Unexplained force ghost ripoffs. Two out of five. Keyboard demo modes. Four out of five. Stealing a lawn tiger. Three out of five. Holy cow, we have seven seconds to spare, and that was the entire list. Oh my giddy Wow. Oh. I guess we I don't just know have if that's our fault for not preparing for the remaining seconds then. <laughs> yeah. Well. Okay then. Um, yeah. As we wrap up this episode of Cookie Pocket and Attempt at a Podcast, Mitchell, why don't you tell us what we're going to be talking about next time? We're going to be talking about Hearts War, and we're going to watch it together. It's a uh, kind of a courtroom drama. Um, of course, it's World War II again. <laughs> so um, this is what you get for the final countdown. Uh, <laughs> I hate you. Uh, this is very, this is very a lot more serious. Okay, this is probably the most serious film, and it also kind of you know, it, it's very controversial. I guess okay. in today's times, it would be very controversial. But we're going to talk about it very critically, and I'm going to recommend it. And you're going to give it a high rating, or I'm going to come over to your house oh. and uh, I don't know, throw rocks at you or hit you with ninja chuck. <laughs> Well, okay. Uh, so, <laughs> well, Bruce in. Willis in it. Yes, it does have Bruce Willis in it, and I'm and I'm told he cares on this one. So, mm. um, <laughs> uh, tune in next time if you want to hear us satisfy Mitchell's niche with Hearts of <laughs> Until then, this has been us at Cookie Pocket and attempt at a podcast. Mm.